and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode it's all bootlegging moonshine and drinking Budweiser. It's the NASCAR show. But first, an update on Michael Fassbender's Road to Le Mans. Yeah, this has had another couple of episodes out since we last uh, podded and I think they've both been really good episodes it's really interesting to see a progression in his driving and his confidence. And they're actually starting to do like voiceovers and little interviews where he actually starts explaining why he's doing this. He, in the, you know, in the latest one, he starts talking about how he's loved racing from a really early age and he was watching Formula One. And I feel like this is the stuff that should have been in that episode naught, you know, that preamble episode that mm. we've been saying it really needed we need to know why he's doing it and sprinkling it in in bits by bit with the episodes as they go on is fine but i really feel like this would tell a better story and we'd all be following along more avidly if he'd explained why he was doing it in the very first (laughs) place but they have started to do that they've started to give more detail on on why he's decided to take this journey on and you know the last episode was quite joyous to watch because it's no spoiler to say he has a good result you know his his driving's mm. coming on in leaps and bounds he's clearly quick and is beginning to to get the hang of the the car and it's a relief after a few episodes where he's quick but hasn't quite grasped all the other bits of racing to see him mm. put a whole weekend together and it's somewhere like spa which is a very tough place to race, regardless of your skill level. Um, so I'm really enjoying this now. When it comes out on a Friday, I will watch it as soon as I possibly can because I want to know what happens next. I have no idea if this is... I mean, I, has this already happened? Did he race at Le Mans this year? Could I go and spoil it for myself? So, so this is leading up to Le Mans 2020. I think so. Because I had a brief moment of, has this already happened? And I just didn't know. Can I go and spoil the end? But I... Um, I wouldn't do it anyway, but it occurred to me. And if this is leading up to, to Le Mans 2020, then we're kind of following along in almost real time. Um, maybe we're a few months behind or however it goes. But I'm I'm really interested to see where he goes next, how he continues on in this series, and when he gets to Le Mans, you know, how he fares against a field of pretty good drivers, it seems. Oh, very. I do have a slight... Um what's the word i'm looking for he comes across slightly oddly when he's being interviewed so when he's doing his little bits to camera or just off camera he seems very sort of laid back and laconic but when he gets out of the car and he's talking to the driver and he's talking to his engineer he's properly full of emotion and absolutely wired and you can see how much he's loving doing it when it's going well how much he's loving doing it and how much it means to him to do well and to not let the team down that was the thing Mm. i found really intriguing is watching his reactions when things don't go so well uh, either for him or his teammate and and how whenever it's something that maybe he's done he is so gutted for everyone else he feels so bad that he's Mm. let them down which I think is is the mark of a decent person, um, i.e. not oh, Max yeah. Verstappen. <laughs> and also, it was interesting seeing him driving the GTE car. So that's the Le Mans class GT car, which is faster. It was the RSR or the GTE? Downforce. Oh, yeah, because he started off in the cut car and then he went to the RSR. It's not a GTE car yet. I don't think he's got that far. GTE Ooh. would be in full house Le Mans, so I'm not sure he's going to be, unless he's in GTM. So is he going to be in GTM next year's Le Mans? I guess so. So the car has to be, well, the car has to be a year old in GTM, I think. So it could be oh, this year's I want, more, I want to know more about GTE. this. I want them to tell us what the hell this is all going for. <laughs> if they'd had this episode so, at the start wait. that said, by the way, you know, he loves racing and he's aiming to be on the grid for the Le Mans 24 hours because this is just journey to Le Mans and it could be journey to a Porsche support race at Le Mans I don't really know exactly it could just be he's going to be out there for an hour in a support race that's not televised and no one's watching because they're at the beer tent oh I there are people that I that I I know in a fashion that have sort of done I'm racing at Le Mans it's like uh, you're racing at Le Mans but you're not racing in Le Mans yeah there's a difference 
and I don't know which way this is going now. So I, I feel like I'm going to have to go digging and look for some more info. But if you haven't started watching this series, I recommend going and finding it on YouTube. I think it's under the Porsche um, channel. So if you subscribe to that, you should start seeing the mm. episodes. They come out every Friday at like 11 a.m., which means I watch them on my Friday lunch break, if not before. Sorry, people at work. <laughs> and it's getting so much better now that they're putting some meat on the bones. And speaking of meat on the bones, blimey, he's that chap is ripped. Yeah, it's kind of galling when he gets out and he's really hot and he takes his top off and you go, Jesus, it's not really fair. You get to race Porsches and you look like that. Right. I know that Porsche have a confusing product lineup at the best of times, but we are nothing if not a podcast of pedantry. So, you've got the GT3 Cup car. Yes. You've then got the GT3R, which is the GT3 class car that isn't a GT911 GT3, it's a GT3 class car. Right. So, is that the RSR so, or is that another thing? No. Right. It's it's below the RSR. So the RSR is the Le Mans car. So it's what a an Aston Martin GTE or a Corvette GTE would be. So it is the Le Mans car, but there are currently two versions of it because the AM classes are running the rear engine car. The, the Pro gets the mid engine one. They get the mid-engined ones. Well, is that so, going to be true for 2020, though? Because surely the mid-engined ones are going to cascade down to the AM grid at this point. They should be, but I'm guessing that there aren't that many of them, and you probably don't let some rookie have a go in the posh car that might still be needed for, like, a, I don't know, ELMS event or something. Maybe. We've kind of strayed down daily sports car territory here, but... Um the well, the episodes are like you say, putting meat on the bones. It's it's cracking along at a pace now, which makes me go, I want to see what's next. Mm. I'm I'm really looking forward to the moment where he gets a podium. Assuming he gets to get a podium. Did he get a podium last time? Was it? Did he finish third or Don't fourth? I think so. I think they were on for a very good result, and then they did he speed in the pit lane or something. Yes, they got a penalty. sorry, spoilers, <laughs> if you haven't seen these things. Um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that first podium, and he's definitely got the speed for it, and he just needs everything to come together. So mm. it's it's kind of become essential viewing. Mm. One thing that I would point out as well, having watched these, the thing that it kept reminding me of, there's a chap at the Nürburgring called Misha Chirudin, who used to go under the name of Boosted Borist, Thankfully, he doesn't anymore. And he's actually been running a series of vlogs himself this year, getting into RCN at the Nürburgring and then VLN and now getting qualified for the N24 for next year. And I kind of watched all the Fassbender stuff thinking, there's obviously money here. There's He's obviously got a camera crew following around. There's obviously, you know, a marketing budget behind this. But actually... If anybody's enjoying this series, I would recommend, and we'll put a link in the show notes, to Misha's uh, playlist of the videos that he's done racing this year. Because he goes through, it's like, here's the car, here's the, the competition, here's where we have to finish, this is what we're doing, this is what happened, this is, spoiler, why I crashed. And he actually goes through the whole thing. And he's he's a really good personality. He's really open. He's really honest. And he's really enthusiastic because he's doing something that he's always wanted to do. So, Porsche, if you are listening to this, go and watch Misha's video, as should all of our listeners. That's how you do a racing vlog series. Yeah, I... His are a little bit more DIY. I haven't seen his racing ones. I think I may have seen the one after after he crashed. But his are a little more in the, the YouTuber style, little, less, Entirely. less polished and produced than Porsche. And I'm not sure Porsche would be willing to... Well, I don't know. Would Michael Fassbender want to be holding a Sony camera away from his arms <laughs> going, Hi, guys. guys! Today I raced at the spa. It's called the spa, right? <laughs> I somehow don't think they're going to go for that. But I, I take I take the point. Here is somebody being as honest as possible. And the Fastbender stuff is very honest. You know, they're not mm, shying absolutely. away from showing mistakes and the, you know, the steepness of the learning curve. But there's still a degree of corporate marketing product to it. Not too much. Um, 
it, but mm. he, that, that's that's again i think where the the slightly choppy nature of this is is coming and they're not quite letting it breathe for long enough these are only i don't know seven eight minutes long they're not if that yeah, yeah, they're yeah. not really long enough they could stand to be quarter of an hour each and i think if you read the comments under almost any of the videos this is just full of people saying these could be longer i could watch an hour of this i could watch a movie of this because Fassbender is so engaging and because the content is so honest, but it's being chopped to to shreds, uh, mm. presumably by a PR and marketing department who are terrified of long-form content. Definitely. Moving on from Fassbender to something that Marty doesn't actually know about, because I told about this just before we started recording. There's a film out in the UK this week called Driven. Now, for me and Marty, Driven means an awful, awful film with Sylvester Stallone wanting to kind of do a Formula One movie but ending up having to do it in Champ Car and... I, did we, did we We've reviewed this. We've that? reviewed this in a previous episode. I went back thinking there'd be fond nostalgic memories of a movie that everyone says is rubbish and I actually quite like. And it turned out that, no, everyone else was right. It's rubbish. <laughs> this Driven, however, is kind of about John DeLorean and he's one of a uh, a tranche of DeLorean films that seem to be out at the moment so we've had Alec Baldwin playing John DeLorean in Framing John DeLorean where he gives his insight and there was an interesting Twitter thread with um, Richard Porter Sniff Petrol on Twitter Alex Goy myself and a few others going why does Alec Baldwin do this and it's definitely on my list of things to watch one day but this isn't the story of John DeLorean. It's actually the story of the FBI informer who ended up doing the cocaine deal that got John DeLorean banged up. Um, the reviewer in The Guardian, who brilliantly described uh, the DeLorean cars as uh, having falcon wing doors and an unreliable engine, which is that's fair. That's fair. The problem I've always had with the DeLorean is Back to the Future made it look and sound awesome. And in a nice tie into our NASCAR themed show, they think they used a NASCAR V8 to dub underneath the DeLorean <laughs> because what it had was a rotten French V6, I seem to remember. I think it was a three litre V6 that produced 120 horsepower. I'm not sure how they managed to get so much power out of such a big engine. Maybe so little power. But, well, indeed. But yes, so driven. If you if you're a DeLorean completist, a three star review in the Guardian probably will uh, be enough to get you to a cinema. But I don't think it's going to be on our uh, on our shortlist anytime soon. In fact, the very last line of it is one of the actors is authentically bland and slippery. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's it's true <laughs> I've not heard an actor be described as slippery before now <laughs> so yes if again I'll put a link to the show notes for this review but yes it's not a, not a much like John DeLorean it's not a film covering itself in glory much like the other driven very much like the other driven this yes I think that's a pairing that I think we will never ever do on this show <laughs> No, I've already watched Driven once more in my life. I don't need to see it again. <laughs> so, from the uh, production lines of Northern Ireland to the Carolinas and the uh, deep south of America, we're talking NASCAR. And probably the film that introduced NASCAR in Britain, certainly from when I was young, is the one that you're reviewing. So, tell us about Days of Thunder. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I knew nothing about NASCAR until I watched Days of Thunder. Um, so this is a film by director Tony Scott, made in 1990, called Days of Thunder. Um, working title while it was being filmed was Top Car. The reason being is that this film desperately wants to be Top Gun for cars. It's got the same director, it's got the same movie star, it's got the same cinematographer... I think all of the reviews at the time were going straight for that Top Gun with Cars thing. It's very shallow and it's very glossy. In honour of the director and the, the film, I did actually watch this while wearing a pair of aviators <laughs> through a tobacco grad <laughs> at Golden Hour with a Hans Zimmer score. <laughs> with a leather jacket with, and a fleecy collar. Yeah, I rode home on a motorbike and, you know, all of the cliches are there. But much like we were talking about Driven earlier on and I watched that, 
with memories of, oh, I really like this, and then it turned out it was rubbish. I had the opposite experience with Days of Thunder. I haven't seen Days of Thunder for 10 years, and I kind of, in, in the intervening time, remember it being a bit crap. And I've watched it and gone, this is actually quite good. So it concerns the story of a young racing driver called Cole Trickle, yes, really, um, <laughs> who has years of open-wheel racing experience. He's been winning championships in the, the US Auto Club. He was originally wanting to go on to do the Indianapolis 500, but he realises that he needs a really good car and can't get one. And so he says, well, I'll go NASCAR racing because all of the cars are all the same. He's quick and he gets a seat in a team run by a local uh, Chevy dealership tycoon to race in his team in the NASCAR Winston Cup Series. Uh, what is now, what's the, what's it called? The chase for uh, the race for the thing for the... Nextel? Nextel, is it, whatever is it, it is. Yeah, the, current, the current NASCAR thing. So it used to be the Winston Cup, but now it's called something else. But it's, you know, it's the major, it's the, it's the world championship of NASCAR. Um <laughs> In the lower states. So this this, uh, Chevy dealership owner brings a former crew chief and car builder called Harry Hogg. What a great name. This movie's full (laughs) of great names. Brings him out of retirement to lead uh, Cole Trickle's pit crew. Builds him a new car. And predictably, the young rookie has some trouble adjusting to NASCAR because he's, you know, confused about only ever turning left. Wait, can I just ask before you carry on? The old crew chief who came out of retirement, had he made a promise to anybody to never have to do this again? Yes, of course he did had. He to go, did he go to a, a closet and pull out a shoebox that had like an old shirt in it or something? Yeah. I think that closet was in a barn that had shafts of light streaming through the open, you know, with with dust motes floating in the air and a gently haunting guitar playing in the background. This film trades on cliches, as as you can tell, we're being very facetious, but it's full of cliches. But they kind of work in an affectionate way. You you know what you're seeing. So the, the filmmakers who made this movie, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, had produced a number of big 80s hits like Flashdance and they're playing from the same playbook here. They're, they're aiming for the broadest possible audience and so things are told in massively broad strokes. The characters are, are pretty stock, if you'll excuse the pun. <laughs> It's written by uh, Robert Town, Oscar-winning writer for... Uh, he'd done a, a screenplay called Chinatown and Shampoo. It's a hugely respected writer, um, kind of slumming it, writing Days of Thunder. I think he'd been asked by Cruz to do this because Cruz is a massive car fan. And this is not his finest work. The script is pretty clunky. The characters are very broadly painted. But that kind of works for the, the kind of tone they're seeking for this movie. So Cole Trickle has some difficulty adjusting to these NASCAR stock cars and he has some difficulty communicating with his crew. He's found that the racing in NASCAR is pretty rough. Um, I'm not sure how accurate this is because it seems to be that you're allowed to behave like Max Verstappen and just put people off the track in the wall, (laughs) you know... (sighs) Certainly the NASCAR races I've watched, no one is deliberately shoving people into the wall all the time and deliberately spinning them out. I don't think that's allowed anymore, but in the movie world, you're allowed to do this. So Cold Trickle's having trouble with the kind of more uh, robust racing, let's say. Uh, he comes across a, a, a leading driver by the name of Rowdy Burns. Great name again. This movie's full of great names. Um, that's played <laughs> by um, Michael Rooker. Uh, I had to go and look up who it was because he's super familiar. He's a proper hey, it's that guy. Um, and uh, yeah, he's he's really good as as the kind of slightly bad guy who then goes on to befriend Cole Trickle later on in the movie. And it's got Robert Duvall playing the grizzled crew chief, Harry Hogg. Again, big, broad strokes. He's the guy that goes back through the barn. He's come out of retirement. He swore he'd never do it again because someone else died on his watch. And God damn it, I don't want that to happen again. But it works. It really does because they're hitting all the notes you want them to hit. There's the, you know, the, the early failures. And then there's the bit where there's a montage of him learning how to drive a NASCAR. And then lo and behold, wouldn't you know, he goes on and he wins his next race. And then they do really well. And then there's a crash. And oh, confidence is, is shaken and things go wrong. And well, you know what's going to happen at the end, right? He's going to get better and go on and you know, win the world championships of Monaco. <laughs> I think... 
the joy for me in this movie is it shows a lot of really accurate racing footage intermixed with some really well done so like racing recreation where they've got real NASCARs and they've they've filmed them with long lenses to make them look like they're going a bit quicker um normally NASCAR races are all 200 miles an hour plus. It's one of the big things you're seeing. These cars go past astonishing speed. You can't do that when you're filming for the safety of everybody involved. So apparently things were shot at more like 100, 120, um, which when you intercut that with real racing footage, leaps out at you because suddenly there's far fewer cars on track and they're going a lot slower. So they don't show it very often. But the stuff they do show, and they manage to cut in real racing footage quite nicely, um, and they've got a lot of uh, use of the rearview mirror. I don't know how much NASCAR drivers look in the rearview mirror, but there's loads of cut shots where you can see a car kind of weaving back and forth behind another car, doing the draft, and I really like all that stuff. The Foley work is exceptional. You put this on a, a decent surround system, and you're hearing that ripping roar of NASCAR brutal V8s. If you've got a any kind of petrol in your veins, you can't fail to grin at that sound. It's just glorious. And you kind of forgive a lot of things because, you know, you can hear that echoing around these these ovals as they're, as they're racing. And it puts a smile on your face. And before you know it, you're on board with the movie and you don't care that it's all being played very broadly and you can see what's coming before the, you know, before it actually happens. There's some... There's some questionable stuff. I think the, the the movie's sexual politics have dated a little. There's a um, a scene after Cole wins his first race where they get pulled over by what looks like Highway Patrol, but it turns out to be a hooker they've hired to grab Cole's crotch. Um, <laughs> that raised an eyebrow. And then there's a later scene where Cole meets a, a female doctor and assumes that his team have set up the same gag again and grabs her hand and puts it on his crotch. And, oh, lo and behold, she's actually a real doctor. And you can't do that. I'm pretty sure that's sexual assault. Uh, that gets kind of glossed over. In <laughs> This was 1990, I think. There was less of the Me Too uh, at that point. Mm. That was a little weird to watch. It suffers from the same issue that almost all racing movies do, where if the driver wants to go a bit faster, he just changes into another gear and puts his foot to the floor or puts his foot a bit further down because he wasn't foot to the floor right now. And you get that kind of pedal cam shot that you see in all of the Fast and Furious movies where, you know, clutch in, ram another gear home, flat on the accelerator. And that's just not what happens in racing. <laughs> and movie directors, and they don't seem to be able to to show real driving in that manner, possibly because they think people won't understand or they'll think that they're not trying. Every time I see that, I always think, well, why don't you guys go and watch that video of Valterol driving the Audi where you can see his feet dancing on the pedals as he's, he's rallying around in the mid-80s in a Group B nutter car. How is that not more cinematic than watching someone oaf their way around the pedal box? Mm. Uh, I don't know, but... Oh, look at... Is it Simon Paginel when he won the Indy 500 last year, this year? And it was him and Alexander Rossi for the last 10 laps. And they were so equally matched. It wasn't about that great surge. It was just trying to find that... It was timing with Paginot's win. And I thought Rossi had it. But Paginot had a faster car just in the setup and the way he'd got it running. And Mm. he timed his move to perfection so that there was no chance for Rossi to catch him back up. I don't know. Is is that just too subtle for a Mm. broad mainstream audience to grasp? Or too slow. You know... All racing movies do this. I'm pretty sure even Rush did this. Um, Maybe there's a few movies out there that haven't, but it's almost always the cliche. Do you want to go faster? Put your foot down a bit more. (laughs) Push it through the bulkhead. Yeah, there's... There's cheesy moments, but the whole movie's cheesy. The tobacco grad on almost all the shots, the fact that all the races appear to take place at sunset so that they can get cool <laughs> magic hour daylight. It's it's the, the absolute apogee of that Tony Scott cliched look that 
quite quickly disappeared in the start of the 90s. There weren't really that many movies. I'd say maybe Bad Boys was the last movie I can remember that had that heavy grad golden hour look. And then mm. movie, you know, action movies started moving away from that, apart from Michael Bay. But it, and Jerry Bruckheimer. You know, well, yeah, but then you know the, the other producer on this, Don Simpson, didn't make that many more movies before he died. And he was a you know legendarily a bit of a partier. There's some great background stories on... Uh, production of this in that both producers seem to argue constantly about setting up shots. They argued with the director, they argued with the writer. Apparently the crew members had so much idle time that they'd uh, they'd accumulated enough overtime to go on holiday for four months after the filming was completed. (laughs) The budget was supposed to be around $35 million, but after all these overruns for, for various things, that had nearly doubled. And so they were looking at making over 100 million for it to break even, including marketing, wow. which in 1990s a pretty hefty, uh, hefty amount. It did make there, you know, I think over uh, 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 globally it grossed 157 odd million, which meant it's in profit and it made another 40 million in um, VHS rental and, and home video. I'm pretty sure I first saw it on a ropey VHS from my local video store. So it's quite a shock to kind of go back and watch it on a on a high def screen and and you know you can see the film grain but it holds up pretty well and it's it is for everything else and we've mocked him for Tony Scott knows how to shoot stuff to make it look cool. Mm. It's got a good score. The Hans Zimmer score is you know kind of generic action movie score. It's be quite fun to listen to. The problem with it is as with lots of other things it's desperately trying to be the Top Gun score. He's really trying to ape the Harold Faltermeyer and Steve Stevens um, Top Gun work to the point where I think there's Jeff Beck on guitar in an attempt to sort of one-up the guitar hero. Uh, it's, it's very generic. There's nothing as hummable as the Top Gun theme. No. It just sounds like a knockoff Top Gun theme. Um, so it's, a, it's an early Hans Zimmer score, which is sort of all, all action and derivative bombast without anything memorable. I would listen to it totally to do some work too, but it's it's not the Top Gun score by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. Did we ever find out what Mellow Yellow was? Oh, uh, I did look this up. I think it's a drink, like a soft drink. Right. So we should add Obviously. the... the uh, we'll go through this because I've got an interesting point about the, uh, the, the cars in this were obviously fake NASCARs, but it's a movie and therefore is kind of advertising. So I think they actually sold the space on these cars to real sponsors for the movie. Um, so there's there's uh, there's a real Chevy dealer on the, the the front of the car at the start. City Chevrolet oh, wow. is a real Chevy dealer. Um, one thing I found really, really weird is the fact that at the start of the movie, uh, Cole Trickle's car number is number 46 and his car is green and yellow. And... It's very odd to see the number 46 in a very similar font, green and yellow, and for it not to be associated with Valentino Rossi. (laughs) Um, If you know your MotoGP or your motorsport stars in general, Valentino Rossi's number is number 46, and he's, you know, kind of either yellow or day-glow yellow or yellow and green. Those are his numbers and his colours. And so to see that on a a car and being held out on a pit board was really odd. Mm. but the car um, kind of then goes on to, you know, gets resprayed when they get a new sponsor and it's red and black. And then the the car that Cole Trickle races in the, the Daytona 500 at the end of the movie has got a completely different sponsor on it. But they're, they're real, real sponsors. And in fact, the, to get some of the footage of the cars racing, they got real NASCAR drivers to race them in non-points scoring um, entries in real races. So I think oh, they wow. raced at Phoenix in 1989 and again at Daytona and Darlington. One of the drivers, um, Hut Strickland, again, a great name. NASCAR drivers are one of the best names. <laughs> Apparently said he made more money for from uh, working on Days of Thunder than he ever did from actually racing. <laughs> Which goes to show you where some of that 70 million budget went. Wow. Yeah, the cars were provided by Hendrick Motorsports, who've got a long history in, in NASCAR. And uh, they are genuine NASCARs, which is one of the things I really like. There's no... I mean, maybe they had some prop cars, but I don't think you could get any of these shots without them being real. 
and and mm. also it helps that stock cars are quite simple by their very nature so they don't cost anywhere near as much to build as you know fake movie single seaters so you don't have that horrible kind of moment that you get in driven where you can clearly see that it's it's a kit car with a fiberglass body on it or you know just an outline of a of a of a roll cage that they've stuck some crayon and sticky tape to to make it look like a car these are real cars um i did have a bit of a chuckle when i was watching at the start there's a montage of cold trickles new car being made and it's basically here is a roll cage made out of angle iron and now we're going to get some quarter inch steel and and nail it together <laughs> and then we'll put a, like a little shape a template former over to check that it's the right shape but there's sort of shots where you look at the body panels and it, yeah it's just i guess sheet steel and mm. held together with rivets and and for someone who grew up watching formula one and I'm very versed in the kind of carbon composite monocell construction of racing cars to see that be how you build an NASCAR. And it probably is how you build an NASCAR back in 1990. Yep. Just feels ancient to me. It feels like, no, that can't be how it is. And then you remember that stock car racing, it kind of was like that. And then they, they crane in a, a, an engine that looks like it's come out of the, the old truck sat outside of the barn. Um, they've got proper V8 motors in there. But they're proper push rods as well. They're the pan head flat this whatever it is V eights and there they is sound amazing. I don't know how much power they make. I think they make like eight hundred horsepower now. Oh, but you know, yeah, yeah. They they make but, great power and they 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 sound amazing. And uh, so, it, there's a good there's a joy to watching you know the kind of sim- simplistical racing stories you know that in the last race of the film he's going to win he's going to come from the back there's no spoilers <laughs> in me telling you this stuff um but it's how it happens and it's full of really quotable things i'd forgotten about um there's a moment where crew says i'm dropping the hammer uh, which immediately made me think of lewis hamilton's radio hammer chief time. radio chief what am i talking about he's pit engineer <laughs> see i've been watching too much nascar um you know his, it's his the hammer chief. time thing yeah his crew chief <laughs> uh, that really made me think oh that's the original it's hammer time Mm. Um, there's the the absolute classic where he's moaning down the radio at the start that they hit him and his crew chief comes on the radio and said, no, he rubbed you. And rubbing <laughs> is racing. And that, I think, has passed into law. I've even mm. heard Martin Brundle mention that on the F1 commentary before now. There's a real... Uh, <laughs> that one raised a really big smile. There's a few other good, really great quotable things where he's talking about how cars set up and he says it's really loose at the rear and he says, oh, yeah, well, loose is fast and fast is on the edge of out of control <laughs> I'm not Fantastic. sure if NASCAR crew chiefs really talk like that in my head they do um, absolutely but it's very quotable like that highly enjoyable there's a bunch of real life references scattered out there as well throughout the movie you can see that when they were doing the research they went and found some interesting stories about NASCAR and then snuck them into the plot there's a moment where Cold Trickle can't pit because he's told the crew's too busy eating ice cream <laughs> Um, something Kimi Raikkonen would approve of. Uh, this apparently actually occurred at the 1987 Southern 500 involving the Hendrick Motorsports number 35 team, <laughs> which uh, you just can't, even in NASCAR these days, you can't imagine that happening. But no. it's, uh, there's, there's a bunch of other sort of little bits and bobs woven in that are interesting enough that, to catch your attention. There's a couple of other things I really want to mention about this that I, I really enjoyed. There's a moment where Cole's really struggled with the car and he, you know, they're, they're pretty much ready to fire him. And he's in a bar talking to his crew chief and he actually admits he doesn't know how to describe how to get the car to drive the way he wants. He doesn't know what they mean when they say loose. He doesn't know what they mean when they add some wing or give it some wedge. He he just knows instinctively how to drive a car fast. But the thing I really liked about that was watching, you know, the hero of the movie actually admit ignorance, mm. which is not something that Tom Cruise heroes very often do, even now, let alone back in the day when he was the biggest movie star on the planet. <laughs> True. So I uh, that really st- stuck out for me. And there's a second scene where... Um, He's talking to another racing driver who's had an accident and trying to get that person to admit that they're not right, that the accident has affected them more than they think and that they need to go to the hospital. And it's you know that kind of breaking through the machismo of, ah, oh, we're men, we do not go to the hospital, we don't listen to the doctors, especially not if they're female. Um, and there's a, there's, 
I missed all this when I watched it when I was a kid, but it does jump out at you now with the the greater emphasis in society on male mental health and the ability of saying, you know what, it's okay to not be okay. And there's just, it wasn't written like that. I know it wasn't, but I, I like the fact that it's there, that it's two mm. blokes talking about their health and, and one of them in particular is not not well and the other guy makes an effort to to get him to go and seek medical help. That I really, really liked. And I'm reading more into it than the filmmakers put there. But that doesn't matter. You take from these what you want. And mm -hmm. that really, that kind of elevated it from just being oh, a fun racing movie. There's a little bit more there. Yes, it's it's quite generic and it's not as iconic as Top Gun. It certainly didn't make people joining NASCAR teams uh, become far more popular in the way that Top Gun boosted Navy recruitment. But I think it probably did introduce NASCAR to a wider audience because at this point it was still a regional championship, you know, pretty much towards the southern states, but it wasn't the kind of behemoth that it became. I think NASCAR's maybe fallen from grace a little bit now. It's not quite the the, the absolute ratings juggernaut that it once was, but mm. it's still the most popular form of motorsport in America. I'm not sure that Days of Thunder actually made a difference in the States, but I certainly think it made a difference across the world and raised the awareness of NASCAR as a motorsport. Certainly, you and I probably had never heard of it, let alone seen it, until you saw this movie. Definitely. So it's, it's actually quite significant in that respect. And it's good, good fun. I, it's not like Driven, where I would say, God, no, don't watch it. It's terrible. <laughs> there's more accuracy here. And there's more, I think there's more love for the sport. It helps that the Cruise is a huge motorsport fan. And I must admit, I was watching through this thinking, had Tom Cruise made this now, he'd have probably spent a year racing NASCAR to prepare <laughs> for the role. And we would have camera angles that zoomed in from way out, you know, far away watching the whole pack. And somehow the camera would zoom in and you'd see it's Tom Cruise at the wheel as he overtakes for the win. True. Yeah, Very back true. in the day, he wasn't as prepared as he is now. And, you know, my budgets weren't the same. But he was a driving force behind getting this project made and I think it really shows. Excellent. I remember watching bits of this when I was younger. I remember being aware of it when it came out. I would have been 10 at the time. But I'm definitely going to go and pick it up and check it out now. Yeah, it's really worth a rewatch. I think most people will have seen this at some point and kind of dismissed it as being very silly. Mm. It's worth a rewatch again. You've got to catch it in the right, the right mood. I'd suggest maybe an adult beverage or two may help, <laughs> but it's it's not driven. <laughs> that can only be a good thing. So, from the relatively sublime to the sadly ridiculous Talladega Nights. I'm really ballad, looking forward to this. Sorry, I'm uh, just going to... The gonna... of Ricky Bobby. <laughs> so, this is 2006 film just following on the heels of Anchorman and it reunites Judd Apatow producing, Adam McKay directing and Will Ferrell starring as the titular Ricky Bobby, who is a... I was going to say, he's a NASCAR driver. The film actually starts with his origin story. So his dad's into speed, he's born in the back of a replica NASCAR, and he's told, when you, you know, when you grow up, speed is everything. If you're not first, then you're last. And then it cuts to 20 years later, and he's working in a pit crew at a NASCAR track with his best mate. And the driver gets out, says that the car's rubbish, basically stomps off. The uh, pit crew chief looks around and says, who wants to drive the car? He puts his hand up, so he jumps in and goes off and comes third. It's a, it's a film that I have not been looking forward to. <laughs> I've never seen it, so I'm, I've been looking forward to this review. <laughs> so I should put my hand up here and say I'm a huge fan of Anchorman I love Will Ferrell Judd Apatow has done some great stuff and some not so great stuff and Adam McKay has done a really interesting selection of uh, work including The Big Short which is hugely underrated and has nothing whatsoever to do with cars but I recommend it if you want it's a mega I love that movie 
I anything that has like um, what's the name Godot in the bath and Anthony Bourdain explaining mortgage Margot options. Robbie, not Gal Godot. Margot, that's it. Margot Robbie. Anyway, um, we've digressed. It's it's a much better film. In fact, let's not talk about no no. no I suppose we should go back <laughs> let's to Let's not talk Ignorance. about that. Let's talk about. There's actually a connection here as well with Days of Thunder because uh, I keep call I keep wanting to call the uh, co-star Michael C. Hall. It's not Michael C. Hall. It's um, John C. Riley. Michael C. Hall wasn't he Dexter? Yes, he was. Yes, <laughs> I c- completely forgot to mention in my review. Michael C. Uh, no, I've done it then. John C. <laughs> uh, John C. Riley is in Days of Thunder as a kind of helpful crew member he's just kind of a yep. ever genial young crew member in in the least john c Riley role ever um <laughs> we should think about the work he's gone on to do both as in serious and comedy here he's just kind of straight man background you mm. know it's a it's a minor part so in this film he's playing ricky bobby's best mate ricky bobby goes on somehow just jumps into an NASCAR, starts winning championships, uh, starts winning races, sorry, not championships, and he gets his team to put in a second car for his mate, and they're getting first and second and basically tearing it up a, uh, tearing it up a storm. Then one day, a driver comes from Europe where he's been driving Formula One, and it's Sacha Baron Cohen, Jean Girard, a Frenchman who I think Sasha Baron Cohen is going for the Peter Sellers, Pink Panther, Inspector Clouseau type character. However, he keeps straying into Officer Crabtree from Hello, Hello. <laughs> so if you think of John Cleese on the the uh, ramparts going, you know, I fart in your general direction and your mother was a gooseberry and your father smelled of elderberries. It's nothing like that good as a French. He's... Not only is he French, is he not offensively only, French. Not only is he offensively French, he's also gay, and his gay husband is a champion breeder of German shepherds. And th- this is the first thing that kind of kind of. I thought, how old is this film? It's only thirteen years old. This is two thousand and six. And they make this big thing about he's gay and isn't that terrible? And you're in America and you know you're coming over and like uh, okay. And then even when they're driving, it's ridiculous. So Jean Girard will be driving this car sponsored by Perrier because of course it is, uh, which they didn't pay for apparently, but they got the rights to do it. And he's drinking espresso while uh, macchiatos while he's driving and he's reading uh, French philosophers and all this sort of thing, and. The problem is, I think with NASCAR, there is so much that you could make fun of in a good-natured, light-hearted way. There's a scene where they're all sat round the dinner table and they're all wearing sponsors' jackets because, of course, they are. You know, they're NASCAR drivers. That's all they think about. But the two main characters are entirely unsympathetic. And Ricky Bobby's raised his kids to be like, if you're a champion, you can do whatever you want. So they're disrespectful and they're awful little characters. And then this French guy comes over and you think, well, I don't much like you either. I don't care who wins. It's all just terrible. And then you get this origin story of Ricky and you get his his dad sort of comes back into the story and you go oh okay so he's damaged you know it's a, it's a it's a it's a daddy issue thing it's an upbringing you know will he overcome no he has panic attacks where he thinks he's on fire and he's not um he at one point is confined to a wheelchair because he thinks he's paralyzed but he isn't and <laughs> what? it's it's completely without redemption there are there are funny bits. You can't get Adam McKay and you can't get Judd Apatow and, and Will Ferrell without there being funny stuff in there. There's one there's one bit where um, during qualifying, the PA announcer in the background as the car pulls into the pit says, Jean Girard is on pole, which is not a comment on his sexuality, just a statement of fact, which made me laugh. And the other thing, and I kind of, this, this twigs something in my head, so Will Ferrell, when he's not making films, he makes Super Bowl commercials for a brewery. Now, the brewery is very small. It's called Old Milwaukee. And because they're very small, they don't have a lot of money, they shoot a Super Bowl commercial with Will Ferrell and then play it in one TV 
station in the middle of Idaho or somewhere that has three people and a goat watching it because it's very cheap. So Will Ferrell does these fantastically funny 30-second or minute commercials for this brewery. And in the film, one of the funniest bits is him as Ricky Bobby doing these fake sponsor adverts for different products. And you think, why did you not do that throughout the whole film? Why did you take all of these good setups and then do silly things with them? There is this stuff in there, which is he wins um, he wins a race in reverse at one point. He gets tagged by another driver. He slams it into reverse. The guy's in like sixth gear doing whatever. And Ricky Bobby's doing the same in reverse. Fine, whatever. You know, it's silly. It's fantastical. Yeah, get it. But there is just no redemption. In Anchorman, Ron Burgundy thinks he's brilliant, but he's actually a bit of a moron. But there's people there next to him going, uh, I, I don't think that's right. And they kind of reflect that stupidness. Whereas in this, he's all just like, I'm the greatest. I'm Ricky Bobby. I can do whatever I want. There's no comeuppance. And then they kind of bend it into this odd little story arc where they kind of try to take everything away from him and then sort of give it back but even then it just doesn't really ever sit well um there are some great performances so jane lynch as his mum who's only like seven years older than will ferrell is great because she is jane lynch and she's always great uh, amy adams is in it far too briefly in a very unearned story arc but she has one scene where basically she acts her socks off unlike most other people in the film and it it gets to the end and the thing that struck me most about it was how well the racing was shot and i had a look at imdb because i don't know about you but that's pretty much where i live when i'm researching a lot of these uh, yep. these films fair and there is one of the producers as with any Hollywood film, there's 12 producers and all sorts in name and credit and what have you. But there's a guy in there called Paul B. Brooks who did a NASCAR 3D, who did um, a NASCAR series in the late 90s. And he's obviously brought with him an amount of knowledge of how to shoot, where the cameras are, where the angles are, how to make the stunts look real. Even the stunts, some of them are a bit overplayed because at 1.2 characters are rolling so long that the cars just keep going and going. The film actually takes an advert break, plays a commercial for Applebee's, comes back to the action and the cars are still rolling. <laughs> and, you know, they do stuff with, with they, you know, they've got cars on ramps and pissed air cannons and all that sort of stuff. But... You also see cars, uh, cameras put onto cars. You see the deformation when one hits another's bumper or body panel or whatever it might be. So there's this disconnect where they've obviously shot at real races. They've got all the proper Victory Lane backgrounds. They've got cameos from Dale Earnhardt Jr. and all this sort of thing. But at the heart of it is nothing. There's so much. The fact that when... A NASCAR driver wins, he has to have 15 different photos taken with 15 different hats for 15 different sponsors. There's so much that you can lovingly sort of play with, but instead you just get this really crass tale about two idiots who look into this dream situation. The plot takes turns for no apparent reason, and there's no real guiding force, and it there's very little redemption at the end there's the the climax of the film is it's climactic i mean it's an end um which is something um it sounds like you're quite happy to get to the end it's one of those things so that there's there's a there's a screenwriting motto that if there's a gun in act one somebody should get shot in act three and there's a setup halfway through the film between John Girard and Ricky Bobby and you kind of watch it going well that's going to come back later and it, it absolutely does and then they go into the bloopers over the credits which is like the blooper rolls about 10 minutes and it's some of the funniest stuff in the whole film it's the Burt Reynolds problem and you're just like oh god this it, this could have been good if they'd only made everyone more um, the, the problem is that Ricky Bobby lives in a bubble where 
It's surrounded by yes-men, and there's no texture. His best mate, he treats like garbage, and there is very little redemption. There's... Again, there's a bit of something at the end, but it's still not really ever showing any kind of great development beyond the kind of the superficial. I um, wonder whether or not this was another one of those movies where improvisation and ad-libbing was allowed to run riot and what made them laugh is what went into the movie as opposed to what makes audiences laugh. I've had that problem with a lot of uh, sort of Adam McKay, Judd Apatow, Will Ferrell movies where I think they think it's funny and I think it's terrible. It's not mm. funny because it's not been planned. It's not been crafted. I think Ghostbusters is one of the funniest movies of the 80s, but it's not a comedy. It's all in the delivery mm. and the lines were crafted to land like bombs. Oh, yeah. Uh, just... Absolutely. And OK, they had Bill Murray and Will Ferrell for with the best will in the world is not Will, Bill Murray. <laughs> but I, I've often wondered whether or not that's the problem with this movie, because I know lots of people love it for because it's because it's rubbish. I'm not sure. I know a lot of people <sighs> love it. I have noticed that it gets referenced a lot by actual racing drivers. Certainly yeah. Jensen Button and Danny Ricardo have, have ribbed one another about being Ricky Bobby on more than one occasion. I don't know if they're doing that because they know it's rubbish or it's a shared joke or something, but I've never had the urge to watch this because Will Ferrell can rub me up the wrong way most of the time, if I'm honest. Mm. I don't find his brand of humour funny. I think the problem is more intrinsic than an ad-lib, and I think that the... The spoof commercials that they did were probably ad-libs. You know, Adam McKay just off-camera shouting lines. And they're really funny. I think the problem... So it's the opposite. Well, it's it's the fundamental story. Because what you have is somebody who who is damaged psychologically, has had a bad upbringing, and is... You think that makes them sympathetic, except they're arrogant. They are... They have no respect. They have no sense of um, humility. They are entitled to hold up two people who are shown constantly, repeatedly to be just tone deaf, awful, awful cretins. (laughs) Oh, good use of the word cretin. (laughs) It could have been really good. They put a lot of time and effort into it. And it, like I say, the car stuff is well shot. It is well understood. And that is what stops it just being a really cheap parody. The fact that it's the right cars, it's people doing the right things on track, it's crashes causing, happening for the right reason. That's what saves it. If you're trapped on an aeroplane and it's like this or Marley and me, give it a watch. Otherwise, I, I would rather watch Anchorman again because I really enjoyed Anchorman. One it's of my the fa- only good movie he's ever made. Come at me, bro. Ooh, Elf? No, it's rubbish. Stranger Than Fiction? Rubbish. Really? I don't know. I haven't seen it. I'm just going with it. <laughs> One thing that I will always retweet every single year is a Anchorman little YouTube silly video about the Goodwood revival about old-timey gentlemen driving old-timey cars. And it's also the name of the uh, pill I use to enhance my male virility. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. Yeah, maybe they should have put more of that kind of humour in uh, (laughs) Talladega Nights. Um, So yes, coming up for the revival, that will be retweeted on the Automovie Podcast uh, (laughs) Twitter account, and there will never, ever be a reference to Talladega Nights ever again. However, please... If I've got this completely wrong, if I'm completely out of touch here, please tweet us, email us. Give me a reason to watch it, because right now, from Chris's recommendation, I am not going to watch this movie. I might try and find a supercut of the racing scenes, just to kind of... (laughs) I was hoping that Chris would make this sound good so I could watch it, because I've come close and then gone, eh, don't like Will Uh, Ferrell. I like uh, racing, don't like Will Ferrell. But yeah, it sounds like I could just, you know, skip this one. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, let's have a palate cleanser and move on. So what have you been watching this week on, on the YouTubes? Well, uh, as we've often said, this could easily be the What's Henry Catchpole Done This Week segment of the show. Um, I'm going to give him a shout out. It's not the feature I want. It's not the uh, um, the film I want to feature, but he has done an amazing review of the new Alpine 8 110S that is really 
creative and harks back to the history of Alpine. It's amazing. I really, mm. really liked it. Um, but that's not the thing I want to highlight this week. The thing I want to highlight this week, and I want to get as many people watching as possible, is the Bloodhound Land Speed Record car, the YouTube channel, and the things they're doing out on the hack scheme pan in the desert. The Bloodhound Land Speed Record car has had a hell of a time over the last decade. They've struggled for funding. They very nearly went bankrupt. They've been saved by a wealthy businessman who has funded the team to go out testing in the desert in South Africa. And the car is finally running and it's looking damn good doing it. So the video I've chosen is the car doing 501 miles an hour during the first round of testing. I'm a land speed record nerd. I love this stuff. <laughs> There's a documentary that you can find on YouTube called The Mission Supersonic Dreams about the previous land speed hold, or actually the current land speed record holding car, Thrust SSC, which was driven by Andy Green, who is also driving Bloodhound. Who is a legend. He is a genuine um, legend. He's a, a, a wing commander by trade, was a fighter pilot when he set the uh, land speed record of 763 miles per hour in Thrust SSC back in 1997. And they've been trying to get this car to do a 1,000 miles an hour. Wow. And it started off as an educational project. It was sold to Lord Drayson at the time by Richard Noble and Andy Green as a means of interesting school children in STEM subjects to give them that big number, 1,000 miles per hour car. How do you solve problems like, you know, what do tyres do at 1,000 miles an hour? They disintegrate. So how do you have wheels? You have solid wheels machined out of a billet of solid titanium. You know, how do you slow a car down from 1,000 miles an hour? Well, you do it uh, over a long distance with a number of means because if you used disc brakes they'd explode uh, there's all these mega problems that they were aiming to get people interested in and it worked but only to a point because they never had a principal sponsor who would stump up the real money to give them the investment to get going and so they kind of fudged on and stumbled on for years and years and years and then it finally died and was near bankruptcy when it was saved by uh, a wealthy businessman whose name I can't remember, it's Ian something. I will look it up and put it in the show notes. <laughs> um, but thank heavens he did, because they've got the car out in the desert and they're running it, and it is glorious, because it's running one of the two turbofan engines from the Eurofighter Typhoon, which is a magnificent aircraft. If you've ever gone to an air show, you'll know when the Typhoon comes along, because it's the loudest thing by a country mile. And they've only got one of those two engines, but when you hear the Bloodhound fire up to go down the desert, it just sounds like a typhoon. And since 1997, camera technology has moved on an awful lot. So, you know, previously they'd have uh, a beautifully shot, but, you know, one single camera angle on a very long lens panning mm. across the desert as the car goes along. Now we've got GoPros that can be buried in the desert very close to the line where the car's running without any worry about damaging it. And, you know, they're shooting... Uh, 4K, they've got a uh, five times speed slowdown just from cheap cameras. It's amazing to watch the video from a GoPro of a car going at 500 miles an hour. In land speed record terms, 500 miles an hour is not very fast. It has put Bloodhound <laughs> into the. Yeah, it's a shakedown. The whole thing is a shakedown test. They're just looking for faults, but it's already wow. put the car in the top 10 fastest cars of all time. But they're posting these videos. They're being very honest about their progress. Um, there's a video while they're running for the next couple of weeks. There's going to be a video every day or every other day detailing you know, the run, what they did, the problems they encountered. And I urge you to watch this stuff. Get behind it because after so long of it dragging on and not looking like there's going to be any progress, they've finally got the car running. And in running mm. it, it started to attract attention again. You know, magazines like Evo and Piston Heads are getting behind it and posting interviews with Andy Green, the pilot, as he gets out the car. There's media interest again and... For someone like me who just wants to see this thing put the record so far out of reach of anyone <laughs> other than the Brits, because we have held the land speed record for decades. The Americans have tried and they've failed. Some people have tried and died, very sadly. Mm. And there's something about the mentality of the British crews that have put together land speed record challenges and successfully done it, particularly since um, Andy Green's been involved and brought a degree of that measured military precision and I don't know what the word is, but... Professionalism? Professionalism is, yeah, that's probably about right. If you go back and watch that uh, Supersonic Dreams documentary, you'll see them talking to Craig Breedlove back in the day and he 
famously would get in the car and decide, oh, this time I'm going to go 600 miles an hour. There was no plan. There was no Mm. ramping up. There was no testing. He'd just go, screw it. Throttles wide open. Let's see how fast she goes. And understandably, he crashed a lot. Whereas with Andy Green on board, it's very, there's a plan. We're going to do 100 miles an hour, see what happens here. 150 miles an hour, test a new component, 200 miles an hour. And they ramp up to it in the way of a, a test pilot. It's 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 ordered and it's planned and it's executed correctly. Even their radio chatter is, is very RAF, calm, uh, requesting permission to taxi or kind of thing. And I love all of that. So please go and watch the video of Bloodhound doing 500 miles an hour. It's only half the speed it will actually do when they're out in 2021 because they're going to strap a rocket to motor underneath the Eurofighter <laughs> engine to make it go even faster. Wow. And that rocket motor is being fed fuel by a Jaguar V8. Yes. So we're back on V8 motors. Uh, and speaking of which, I'm sticking with the NASCAR theme, not Nick Offerman's awesome NASCAR commercial, which I will put a link to in the show notes, because you can be funny about NASCAR and reverent and be funny. So there we go. But rather, there is a... An interesting look at NASCAR pit stops by a show called Sports Science, looking at what it takes to do a NASCAR pit stop. And one of the things to remember, we're so used in Formula One to two seconds, sub two second pit stops now. Yeah, sub two seconds. NASCAR, you're limited to, I think it's seven guys over the wall and each wheel's got five lug nuts and you've only got two air guns. So trying to coordinate all of that and seeing the little tricks they do to make it as fast as they can. And believe me, this sounds slightly bonkers. When you see a NASCAR wheelman using an air gun in slow motion, you can't help but be impressed when you then see it at full speed. So we'll put the links to all of these videos in the show notes. However, that is the end of our show for this episode. If you think we've got it right or you got it wrong or you want to tell me why Talladega Nights is actually a funny film, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod or on the AutoMovie Podcast Facebook page or email us at comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Stick to the high line. You can make it. Hold up. 